2: Hey, this is John in Seattle, and when I'm not telling terrible Jad jokes to anyone who will listen, I'm Stacking Benjamins.
1: Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamins Show! <laughs> I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and hello from, believe it or not, Texarkana, Texas. We're back, people. And to celebrate being back, what a show do we have in store for you today? Help us welcome the man behind the simple path to wealth, J.L. Collins. Plus, do we have day traders to thank for our recent monster bounce back after the big coronavirus drop? Some experts think so. We'll break this down further in our headline segment. And we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to Ryan, who has a question about ways that family can help save for the education of their new baby. Congrats, Ryan. i give you permission to name your baby Doug in my honor if you like, but ah, who are we kidding? You're probably already going to do that, right? And of course, I'll share some stimulating trivia with (laughs) y'all. I had to do it. And now... Two guys who might finally change their tune on day trading. It's Joe and O.
0: Change my tune on day trading. Man, all I live for is day trading. You don't remember? You yeah, you just buy a few stocks in the morning, go buy some Louis Vuitton. Remember? You do the yeah. uh, wakeboarding. Played yeah, that wakeboarding. last week. Take lunch. My life has changed, OG. It has changed. I'm all just day trade for the win. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Day Trade for the Win podcast. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me again, triumphantly, to celebrate Wednesday. It's Mr. OG. What's happening? Wednesday's happening, man. Can you believe it? We're halfway through the week already.
2: Halfway through the week and over two-thirds of the way through the month. It's almost Halloween.
0: Well, now that I'm in one place for a while, I can day trade and eat all the Halloween candy. So that feels good. Yeah. Before you get rolling, got to say a big thanks to Fiverr for supporting Stacky Benjamins. It's so easy, so easy to find freelance talent for your business or product. Don't waste any more time. Get 10% off and the service you deserve by going to dot com and use code SB. Hey, uh, we got a fantastic show today. Our friend Doc G talked to J.L. Collins, and I know a lot of people have... Wanted uh, JL on the show. Yeah. Uh, some guy wrote a book, has a blog, a few people like it. Might be okay. Yeah, we're going to have a discussion with JL Collins, but first we got a couple of great headlines. So let's get moving.
3: Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show our Stacking Benjamin.
0: Well, some lines. good news, OG. They're back at it again. This comes to us from the street.com last week. Robin Hood. Imagine. A company that has been so good to their customers, by the way, a company that points the finger at every other company about how bad they are for their customers, but who just can't seem to get out of the headlines, does it again. This is going to be great. And by great, I mean, how, many, t- how many times can, a, uh, can, can this happen? Robin Hood accounts looted and no customer service to call. Accounts looted? Yeah. Uh, this is by a guy named Mish, uh, and it's it's Mish, Mish Talk, so it's his uh, opinion piece. Uh, I have a problem at Robinhood? Well, that's too damn bad. Robinhood might take three weeks to get back to you, even in cases of fraud in progress. Please consider an article they wrote there called No One at Robinhood to Call. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It took Soria Bagheri a day to learn that 450 shares of Moderna Inc. had been liquidated in her Robinhood account and that $10,000 in withdrawals were pending. But after alerting the online brokerage to what she believed was a theft in progress, she received a frustrating email. The firm wrote that it would investigate and respond within a few weeks and now, ready for this, wait for it her money 's gone that 's fun proof v Rao, a Chicago software engineer, said his account was hit on October sixth. His bet on Netflix Inc was liquidated in twenty eight fifty was soon withdrawn that 's two thousand eight hundred fifty dollars. He said he sent more than a dozen emails to Robinhood's customer support address, and then he even tried messaging some of the brokerage's executives on LinkedIn. showed Bloomberg, the same emailed response from Robinhood that Begari received. We understand the sensitivity of your situation will be escalating the matter to our fraud investigations team. Robinhood customer service agents wrote them. Please be aware that this process may take a few weeks, and the team working on your case won't be able to provide constant updates. Oh, but what's even better? Robinhood blames the user. A limited number of customers appear to have had their Robinhood account targeted by cyber criminals because of their personal email account, that which is associated with their Robinhood account, being compromised outside of Robinhood. A spokesman for the company said in an email, we're actively working with those impacted to secure their accounts. No doubt people have weak passwords, but it appears Robinhood had no control preventing the change of critical information. Financial institutions, including Robinhood, should have a two-stage authentication system to prevent such fraud, and it should work two-stage authentication should be mandatory, not optional, according to Mish here, which is Mike Shedlock. Boy, what a surprise that people burned again by Robinhood. Well, I think a lot of places on the
2: money transfer side of things, isn't it like, um, you know, if you try to move money from another place, you have to you know, verify the deposits and then wait four days and all that other sort of nonsense that we all get ticked off about. How many times do you even do the simple
0: phone authentication to prove that it's you?
2: Yeah. A little text message. Yeah. Like the, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the double deal I'm talking about. If you go to change your bank, which ostensibly this person changed the withdrawal parameters and said, don't put it into this account, put it into this account instead. That usually automatically triggers a pretty lengthy pause for most custodians. I thought.
0: It's still, I have to tell you, I get frustrated. Somebody was defending Robinhood uh, in one of the forums and uh, was uh, accusing me of having just a bad take about an axe to grind grind on Robinhood. I don't, just to be clear, I don't use Robinhood. I don't care who you use. I think there's a lot of other brokerages out there. My axe to grind on Robinhood is that I make podcasts three days a week and Robinhood won't stay out of the damn news. Me exactly. telling you to, to go to Robinhood would be like me telling you to go to Wells Fargo right now. Another company that can't stay out of the news. I don't make the news. I really don't. We just report the care. news. We just report it. Robinhood has proven over and over that they don't, they don't do the right thing. Og, they, they don't.
2: Buyer beware.
0: By the way, this guy, Mike Shedlock, see, not then this is going to sound like I'm piling on. Maybe I am. Should the SEC shut down Robinhood until they have customer service and procedures to stop fraud is the answer. Of course, you know, you post something like this on Twitter. It's like bait. Everybody's going to say, yes, shut them down. Shut them down. It's like when everybody asks, whenever anybody asks about, uh, you know, what do you think of my financial advisor to a group on the Internet? They suck. Fire them. Exactly. Fire them. Should they shut them down? 82.1% said yes. 179 said no. Do you like my angry voice there? Shut them down. No, not good. Got a little work to do. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep working on that. Our second headline comes to us from Bloomberg. This piece is written by Sam Potter. Every day trader dollars worth five in a new theory in stocks day traders claiming bragging rights for this year's 9 trillion us equity rebound can find some supporting evidence in the latest research. Even as retail trading has grown to represent 20% of daily volume, Wall Street has struggled to figure out how much this modest size contingent actually influences prices. After all, markets teeming with algorithmic funds, long-only managers, and more. But a fresh way to understand stock fluctuations via academics at Harvard University and the University of Chicago Booth School of Business makes the efforts a little easier. Listen to this. So by weighing up the sensitivity of various players to prices, they shed light on how individual investors, OG, might have ended up calling the shots in the world's biggest equity market. The research isn't focused specifically on the retail investing club, but the correlation is career. The theory is that institutional managers are largely insensitive to prices because they're buying and selling is primarily driven by their mandates. It's driven by their investment policy yeah, statement.
2: This amount of this percentage of this type of stuff.
0: That bestows disproportionately large influence to other investors like retail funds. According to their inelastic markets perspective, the booming day trade flows of late could have had an impact many times larger than their absolute size, meaning that day traders because they were flooding the market with hot trades right then, having an outsized influence on stocks going up which also oh gee, should make you even more afraid shouldn't it like if you weren't already afraid of the stock market yeah and don't get me wrong you should be in stocks but i think you should always be fearful that the price today is going to be the price tomorrow i think it's good to have a healthy fear of where things are headed and if these guys think that day traders were able to run up prices the second the day traders decide not to run up prices, we're going to see a reversion to the mean back to what prices are usually and should probably usually be worth.
2: That's the uh, wisdom from Harvard, huh?
0: Well, this is why you don't get involved with the market on a daily basis. This is why you don't look at the price of your stuff every four hours,
2: mm-hmm. but it's fun.
0: I'd love to see a study on longevity and how often you check your stuff. Like if you check your stuff every 15 minutes, how many of those How? people have heart attacks versus people that never check it? Oh, that
2: kind of longevity. I thought you meant like portfolio <laughs> no, success or something.
0: No. I'm talking about health. I'd love to see the intersection of health in this. It It isn't healthy and you shouldn't, uh, you know, there was this, uh, there was this number one fear the market back in March. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden there was a fear missing out around what June, July, huge fear missing out. And According to this piece, both of these could probably be wrong.
2: Well, I mean, it's really hard to move a gigantic trillion dollar market, especially in one particular stock. But I agree, it probably happens to some extent on a short-term basis, but certainly not over long-term.
0: We'll link to this piece on our show notes page at com. But I think, OG, that uh, instead of looking at the stock market and thinking about how you're going to become rich that way, thinking about how you can make money in other ways and put more money into the market, probably a better strategy. Yeah, And you know what, if you look better and you feel better, you're much more likely to go in and ask for the raise with confidence, or you'll be able to look the part when you're doing the sales presentations for whatever reason, though, you know, all the things we'd love to do for ourselves, but we haven't done it. Well, for me, I had braces as a kid but uh, didn't take care of them because i didn't understand why i had braces now at 52 i am thinking about this lower jaw line of mine going you know what time to be done putting it off so thanks to candid for straightening my teeth and it's simple easier more comfortable than ever before candid clear aligners are comfortable removal practically invisible unlike wire braces so you can transform your smile without anybody noticing Plus, your treatment's prescribed and monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert on tooth movement, all done from the comfort and convenience of your own home. Candid only works with orthodontists, by the way. Never general dentists like other companies. Plus, your supervising orthodontist going to be with you every step of the way. With Candid, your treatment includes remote monitoring by the same orthodontist who created your plan, so you will never have to wonder how you're doing. You'll always know, and I, I love that. Average Candid treatment, just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. And by the way, it costs thousands less than braces. So you can hold on to your Benjamins. Start straightening your teeth today. Right now, all stackers can save 75 bucks on Candid Starter Kit. Go to CandidCO.com slash SB and use code SB. That's C O com SB, then use code SB. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save $75 in your starter kit. Candidco.com slash SB, code SB. I think our takeaway isn't just that a smile can win the hearts and minds of people in this time of politics, <laughs> but also Robin hood is probably going to do a little more than smile here. There might be some, uh, might be an our piece of this coming But the real headline, I think the takeaway for all of us, OG, don't look at your stuff on a daily basis. Whether this piece is right or wrong, that day traders can influence the market on a daily basis, stay there for the long term because you have no idea who's going to trade tomorrow and for what reason they're going to trade. And that will maybe affect your longevity. Our friend Doc G at the Earn and Invest podcast, not only a fantastic podcaster, of course, he won the Plutus Award last year for Best New Podcast. He also, this year, was nominated for Best Personal Finance Podcast for the Plutus Awards. So he's proven that he's an excellent interviewer. Doc and I were talking about a discussion that he had with JL Collins. And I think this is a discussion that everyone needs to listen to. Because they talk about purchasing a house, they talk about depriving yourself of things to reach financial independence, which I think a lot of people think that they need to do, and they talk about opportunity cost. So let's listen in. This is our friend Doc G. and JL Collins. How do I introduce
3: JL Collins He's been dubbed the godfather of the financial independence movement. His book, The Simple Path to Wealth, is arguably one of the most important personal finance books of this century. His stock series on J.L. Collins NH has taught countless people how to invest. I feel lucky to call him my friend. J.L. Collins, welcome back to the What's Up Next podcast.
4: Wow, I am... Sitting here literally blushing as you go through that introduction, that is more than kind, a little bit of fabrication. <laughs> Nobody should take it as, as gospel, that's that's for sure, other than the part that I'm I'm married to an exceptionally lovely woman. But I'm honored to be back. Thanks for having me.
3: Now, I want to describe the situation here for our listeners. We are sitting almost shoulder to shoulder so that we can both pick up on this microphone that we're holding. I'm looking out a bay window, and there's a little swatch of grass in front of me, and then Lake Michigan crashes against the beach. It's a little bit of a windy day. This is December in Wisconsin. And I can't help but think this is Cabanda. Cabanda, in some ways, to me, seems like the house that financial independence built. Yet, jail, when you wrote about this the first time, you wrote a post called Mr. Anti-House Buys His Dream House. And I'm wondering, is there a contradiction here?
4: Well, I suppose there is a contradiction because while most of my adult life I have owned houses because they fit the lifestyle that I wanted at a particular time when my daughter was younger, for instance, for school districts and that sort of thing. But once she went off to college, I, I never particularly liked owning houses. And I sort of swore off owning them and went back to the more carefree life of being a renter. But we'd been coming up to this stretch of beach in Lake Michigan for literally a decade as my wife's sister and her husband have a place. And we just love this particular, uh, this particular part of the world. And We sort of very casually started looking at houses the last few years that we'd gone up to to stay at their house, and and this little shack that came on the market. The next thing I knew, I went from being completely nomadic and homeless to having a house again. But this one is actually mostly an investment that we Airbnb or actually VRBO, and and then uh, we use it part of the year, so it's kind of a stop on our nomadic travels.
3: You call this a shack, and in fact, I believe Kabanda means what the shack on the lake. This is nothing like a shack. It's a beautiful house on Lake Michigan with its own beach, and it makes me wonder about this idea of indulgence. Does financial independence preclude indulgence?
4: So first of all, as far as I know, the word Kabanda it's a Swahili word, and we were looking for a Swahili word. My, my wife's sister's place, they call shamba, which... It's kind of a country shack out in the middle of nowhere, and I've always liked that name. And so when we got this place, we were looking for another Swahili word. And Kaband evidently means a lot of different things in Swahili, and different Swahili speakers I've spoken to give it a different definition. But one of the definitions is, is shack by the lake or shack by water or something. Anyway, no, I don't think indulgence is contrary to the whole FI movement. In fact, in many ways, it's it's what it's all about. But indulgence comes in many different fashions. The first and most important for me was my freedom, was my time. And that was the first thing I bought with my money. But if you in fact invest your money, as I describe in my book and my blog, over time, you wind up having a fair amount of money and that allows you to indulge in other things. And a lot of people indulge in travel and houses and all kinds of things and it allowed us to buy this this particular little beach house now it it is a, a lovely place but it is in fairness a shack it was built in 1939 as a as literally a shack on the beach and has been tacked on at various points in time and it's a little bit ramshackle and certainly compared to some of the mansions that you find along the lake it's it's a shack in comparison but it is one of the most modest places you'll find on the stretch of beach
3: Often in the financial independence community, I hear people talk about opportunity cost. And occasionally you'll see someone in a Facebook group or somewhere talk about an quote-unquote indulgence that they bought. And the next thing you know, there are a bunch of replies about the opportunity cost. Well, if you just didn't buy that luxurious thing and put the money in VTSAX, in 20 years you'd have $100,000 or a $1 million. Do you buy this opportunity cost argument?
4: not only do i buy it i think i was one of the very first people in the community to make it uh, at least when i started making the the uh, making the point of opportunity cost i had certainly not seen anybody else make it up until that point, and that's possible somebody else had. Opportunity cost is a very real thing in every financial decision you make, because if you spend money on anything, including investments, it precludes spending it on something else, and that is simply what the opportunity cost is. And in my manifesto on the blog, I have a line that says something to the effect of every decision isn't about the money, but you should always be aware of the money decision you're making. So what I mean by that is being on the path to FI and even being frugal doesn't mean that you never spend money. It just means that you're very careful about how you spend money and you spend it, in my view at least, from a position of power. And what I mean by that is that you are spending money in a way and on things that you can easily afford. So as I mentioned, Cabanda is one of the more modest houses along this lakefront. We could have afforded something considerably more expensive, but we couldn't have necessarily bought that from a position of power. In buying this modest little shack at a fairly low price, at least comparatively, it took up less of our resources and therefore we're buying it from a position of power. Is there an opportunity cost to it? Absolutely. But it's a it's a trade-off that I'm willing to make, but I'm willing to make it after carefully considering the opportunity cost and being keenly aware that that's the decision I'm making.
3: Would it be safe to say that opportunity costs don't only apply to finances, but they're lost opportunities when it comes to experiences and even ownership?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, opportunity cost is probably most easily identified in a financial mathematical fashion because you can put numbers directly to it. But anytime you make a choice in life, if you're if you're working at a job and you get an offer to go to a different company or a different organization, well, there's an opportunity cost in whatever decision you make. When we bought Cabanda, uh, that meant that at least for some of the year, we were committing ourselves to coming to this particular part of the world for part of the year as opposed to our otherwise completely nomadic travels that might have taken us who knows where and there's an opportunity cost I guess to that so yeah you always have to be aware of any decision you make in life there there are trade-offs and you also have to be a little careful about that because when you look backwards there's always a tendency to think well gee if I'd gone left instead of right or or taken this path instead of that path things would have been better well of course you don't know that because we don't know what that path would have been like.
3: Talk to me a little bit about how your financial independence journey has affected your family. How do you think they've been affected by this path you've taken?
4: Well, I'm not sure if you're referring to my journey since I started the blog in 2011 or the journey that I really started when I first got out of college because living modestly, saving 50% of your income and investing it, which is what I did, uh, leads to financial security. Although we led a, a fairly modest life, but that was fine. We, you know, didn't want for anything that was important. Since 2011, the starting the blog and the whole FI thing, which I wasn't aware that there was an FI thing until I started my blog. Uh, I'm not sure it has affected them all that much anyway. My daughter was an adult by then, or in college, and. Wife is, I mean, Jane and I have been married for 37 years, so it was just the same old, same old, her husband going out and doing something new and crazy. So I'm not sure it made too much difference.
3: Now, from talking to you, I know that the blog was originally a series of posts, almost like a financial love letter to your daughter. Do you think it had the intended effect?
4: Yeah, I, absolutely. When I started the blog, I had I had begun writing letters to my daughter about financial things that uh, she was not prepared to hear from me. I had kind of started too early and pushed too hard and turned her off to it. And I wanted to make sure the information was available to her when the time came that she was ready to hear it. And then a friend of mine who I shared some of this stuff with said, wow, this is pretty interesting. You ought to put it on a blog. I'd never seen a blog before I'd heard of them. And so I kind of vaguely knew what one was, but what appealed to me was the idea of archiving the information. And I never dreamed that I'd have the audience that I have today or that I'd have any audience at all. Um, But to answer your question, I I think, yes, as my daughter got older and she was able to come at it as an adult and read it, she's now firmly on the FI path herself, and so it's taken hold. And she loves to tease me, by the way, because there have been enormous blessings that have come into my life since starting the blog. I mean, the blog is one of them. Out of the blog came my book, which has been successful. And of course, also out of the blog came Chautauqua. And that's been a great joy for me. And my daughter has fallen into the habit of reminding me that had she listened to me when she was a child and paid attention, I never would have had the motivation or the need to write any of this stuff. And so none of these blessings would be in my life. I owe it to her unwillingness to pay attention to her father.
3: I think a lot of us in the audience, too, find it fairly amazing that your blog and all the content you've put out there was fairly unintentional. It was intended for your daughter, and yet we as a community— have found a lot of good there. So I guess we can all thank your daughter for originally not listening to you and having that dance that daughters and fathers have had for centuries of shaking their heads, saying, yeah, yeah, and moving on, which is something I know my son and daughter are definitely working at as teenagers right now. Your effect on our community was unintended, and yet it's been... A huge effect, in fact, some people have gone as far as giving you the moniker uh the Godfather of Phi. Does your family tease you about that at all?
4: yeah, initially they did and and I have to say, uh Christie of millennial Revolution was the Christie and Bryce of millennial revolution were the first people to to start referencing me that way and i and I have to admit that. I've gotten used to it, but initially it it made me very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm fine with it now, and I'm even, even flattered by it. And I suppose I took a little bit of teasing from my family, but they're past that.
3: Whether you want to argue or not about that moniker, we all know that there is a godfather in the investing world, and that's Jack Bogle. You've written a number of posts on your blog about Jack Bogle. Tell me a little bit about what he means to you as a person and what his passing meant.
4: I love that question. A few years ago on my blog, I had one of my readers made a comment and they very flatteringly compared me to Jack Bogle and it said something like, you're the new Jack Bogle or you're like Jack Bogle. And, and my response to that was if I've lit a candle in the darkness it's a shabby comparison to the white hot sun that was Jack Bogle's contribution. And the difference is enormous because Jack Bogle was the one who conceived the idea of index funds, who initially understood how powerful they could be. He's the guy who created the first index fund. He's the guy who created Vanguard. I'm the guy that's written about it a little bit. I mean, the the gulf between our accomplishments uh, and what we brought to investors is is enormous. I'm immensely flattered any time somebody mentions me in the same breath as as Jack Bogle. But Jack Bogle is, in my view, a fiscal saint. There is nobody who has done more for the individual investor, not only in the United States but around the world, than Jack Bogle. The investment world was an entirely different place before he came along and and brought Vanguard. It was a place that was designed mostly to enrich the people who sold the investments. And Jack Bogle's concept was maybe we ought to enrich the people who actually make the make the investments.
3: You exchanged a series of emails with Jack before his death, and in one of them you write to him, you have long been my personal hero and I am not a fellow given to having personal heroes. Would it surprise you if many in the financial independence community would write the same to you?
4: At this point, no, it wouldn't surprise me because many in the financial community have written that to me. I still find it surprising to be thought of in that way. And I have to correct you a little bit. I I didn't actually exchange a series of emails with Jack Bogle. Um, He was kind enough to send me an email about my book. And it came out of the kind of a funny story. I was in Ecuador. Uh, we were staying in the little seaside village of San Clemente. We were checking out of the hotel to to get the cab, to go to the airport, to go to Quito for uh, the Shtokwa that year. And I thought, oh, before I leave the Internet connection here at the hotel, I'll check my email one last time. And sure enough, a new email was showing up and I clicked on it to see what it was and i was dumbfounded to find that it was a very very nice email from from mr bogle and very complimentary about my book and of course i responded to that email and the quote you you mentioned is is in there but that was the extent of the exchange so uh, i i wish i'd had a closer relationship with him but i'm honored that he was even aware of my book
3: we all know jack bogle for pretty much introducing us and inventing index investing. I've noticed, jale when I talk to you, one of the few things where I really see a visceral reaction in you is when we talk about different manners of investing whether we talk about single stock investing versus index investing, why is this so visceral for you? Well,
4: I, I didn't is that it came across that way. I spent most of my investing career being a stock picker or, and by extension, trying to pick mutual fund managers who would outperform the market who were, of course, stock pickers themselves. So I was either picking stocks myself or trying to pick people who were picking stocks. Jack Bogle started the first index fund in 1975. Just by coincidence, that happened to be the first year I started investing. I didn't hear about index funds for a decade, so I didn't hear about them until the mid-80s. And then I resisted the idea for 10, 15 years to my to my great embarrassment and, and to my cost. I think the problem is that indexing is a little bit counterintuitive, and it just seems that it should be easy to beat the unmanaged market, if you will. And I certainly thought so. And the other thing is that I achieved financial independence, picking individual stocks and picking mutual fund managers. So it's not like it doesn't work at all. It just doesn't work as well. And it's a lot more work to try to do it. So if I come across, if you see some sort of visceral response in me, it It's probably my embarrassment at the lost years of having something that was simply better, more effective, simpler, and easier put in front of me and not having the sense to pick it up for a decade or a decade and a half.
3: I almost feel like people in the community think of you as Mr. VTSAX. Is that too simple? I mean, by focusing on this one fund, are we missing some of the overall importance of broad-based indexing?
4: Well, I think VTSAX is Vanguard's total stock market index fund. So in my mind, it's kind of the epitome of a broad-based index fund. You own VTSAX, and you own virtually every publicly traded company in the United States of America. Huge, broad diversification by definition, and you only have to make one purchase. So of all the funds that are available out there, including all the funds at Vanguard, this is the one that... I think best suits my needs. It's the one that I most, that I suggest that my daughter invest in and that in fact she's invested in. And of course, by extension, then if anybody's paying attention to what I have to say beyond that, that's, that's the recommendation that I make. I think it's all you need until the time comes when you might want to add some bonds. And then there's the total bond market fund, which is uh, VBTLX. Could
3: you see in the future a set of circumstances which makes the primacy of broad-based indexes less likely? Could you see a world changing such that index funds wouldn't be the way to go anymore?
4: You know, that's a great question, and it's one that I've I've given a lot of thought to. And the answer is no. I I don't see a world where indexing stops working or becomes suboptimal, at least not a world based on the capitalist economies that we have at the moment. I do, however, see a time where it might make sense to step beyond just the United States. So I'm somewhat famous or infamous for suggesting that you don't need international funds. My thinking on that is mostly that because with VTSAX or an S&P 500 fund, you own the top major US companies and they are by definition international companies, you benefit from the growth of the world economies that that are going on. But I also see that from the end of World War II when the United States was the only industrialized company not left in ashes and we dominated the world economy, probably 90%, 90 plus percent of the world economy. Well, from that moment on, our share of that pie has gotten steadily smaller. It's not a bad thing. That simply means that the rest of the world rather rebuilt from the ashes. And we now have about half of that pie. It's a much, much bigger pie. I think as the rest of the world gets economically stronger as what we used to call the third world, as those economies grow and prosper, which has been the trend over the last couple of decades, then that pie will get steadily bigger and bigger and the portion of it that the US economy represents will be smaller, even though the US economy can be bigger for it. So at some point, and I'm not sure when this is, it'll probably make sense to own a world fund. And in fact, I say to my international readers. Uh, and when i was traveling in europe i had many of these conversations that if i were living anywhere other than the united states i would probably already be in a world fund i'm comfortable being in the us because i i'm so close to this market so that's one of the reasons i'm still in in vtsax but i certainly wouldn't recommend any other single country if you were in any other country in the world i wouldn't recommend that you only own a fund that invests in that country. The United States is really the only country where you can get away from it. So I think that's a change I see coming. When it comes, I don't think it's gonna affect my lifetime. Uh, I do talk to my daughter about that and I've told her that it's something she wants to pay attention to and at some point she might wanna make the shift, but I see it as being a fairly gradual thing.
3: Would you classify financial independence as a movement?
4: I suppose so and I suppose it depends on how you define a movement. You know, when I was young and building my own, what I thought of as FU money at the time, by the way, I achieved financial independence without knowing what it was or even knowing there was a term for it. I didn't actually come across the term FI or financial independence until after I started my blog. So yeah, I think in that sense, it's it's a concept that's become popular. I think the idea of living frugally, saving money and putting aside for your future is you know, that's been around for centuries. But now, you know, it's become kind of fashionable. And I suppose from that point of view, it's become a movement.
3: Tell me, what do you think jails is going to happen with financial independence over the next 10 years?
4: Partially, that depends on what happens over the next 10 years. I would like to see financial independence, the idea of it and the practice of it spread across a broader range of the population. Uh, and I know a lot of my, my friends and colleagues in the, in the financial independence world are working to make that happen. I think the growth is going to be slow. I think we're always going to be unicorns. A lot of people disagree with me on that. And I think that at some point, the market is going to take a dive. Since I've started writing my blog, and really since 2009, when the market bottomed in the last debacle, it's pretty much done nothing but go up, and that's been a wonderful ride. But that also coincides with the growth of this FI community, and it occurs to me that a lot of people who are enthusiastic about it have never lived through a sharp downturn. and. It is brutal. I have a feeling that when the next one comes, and I'm not predicting it because I don't know when it's going to come. It could be happening as we're recording this. It could be years away. But I do know that at some point it will happen because it always happens. That's the nature of the market. It's something best ignored, by the way. It's not really a big deal. It will pass and the market will go on new heights. But for those who haven't experienced it, it it will be gut-wrenching. And I have a feeling that it will take the bloom off the financial independence rose.
3: You bring up a good point that many of us, especially the younger ones, maybe haven't yet gone through a real market downturn. Talk to me about your experiences during the two major downturns of the last few decades.
4: Yeah, so this is something that concerns me. And I wonder at times whether... You can learn how to tolerate a major downturn simply by reading about it, reading what I've written, for instance, and what I say to do, which is basically nothing, stay the course, don't make any changes and understand that it's, if anything, a buying opportunity and the market always recovers. And that's easy and comforting to read, but I'm not sure that people can really, without actually experiencing that themselves. And so, for instance, in 1987, there was Black Monday. Black Monday was the biggest percentage market drop in the history of the U.S. stock market. It includes the Great Depression, includes what happened in 07, 08, 09. Uh, it was 25%, 24, 25% in a day the market went down. And um, it, was, it was absolutely brutal. And at the time, I knew that you should stay the course. I mean, I knew this stuff in my head. I didn't fully accept it in my gut, so I didn't sell right away. But then after Black Monday, the market continued to drift down and continued to drift down and continued to drift down. And it was it was like water torture. It was initially this incredibly painful experience. And anyway, I finally, several months later, I lost my nerve. I've written about this on the blog by the way and if I didn't sell out at the absolute bottom it was close enough that it didn't matter and of course the market as it always does promptly turned around and began to go back up. And by the time I bought back in it had surpassed, you know, the, the height that it, it had with Black Monday. So that was my learning experience. And it was that experience that I looked to when we were going through the tech collapse in 2000 and then, you know, what happened in oh seven oh eight, because I'm not immune to being made nervous by these things, especially, you know, 07, 08 was an exceptional moment in history. And to put that in perspective. You know, I, I hear people and I see people say, well, yeah, if my portfolio cut in half, I, I wouldn't like it, but I could deal with it. That'd be okay. And I say, all right, that makes sense. No, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's suppose that in 2007, you had a portfolio of a million two. And a couple of years later, uh, in 2009, beginning of 2009, that's been cut in half, which is of course what actually happened. And now your portfolio is worth 600,000 and you're saying you'd be okay with that. You could tolerate that. And I'll take you at your word, but let's add another point to it. And that is that while that was the bottom and the bottom came in March of 2009, nobody knew at the time that that was the bottom. And in fact, everybody I was talking to at the time, and I was talking to a lot of people were predicting that it was going to go much lower. The most common prediction was it was going to go down another two-thirds. So now take yourself back to March of '09, which is at the bottom. Nobody knows it's at the bottom. You've lost half your money. You're at 600000 And everywhere you turn, people are telling you, you can expect that that's going to be 200000 You still stay the course? That's the question you need to be asking yourself.
3: And this also gets back to the point that trying to listen to other people's predictions will make you more and more and more upset. I mean, have you ever found any value in reading the predictions in the newspaper, et etc.? Point
4: well taken, nobody can predict the future. And as I said a moment ago, I'm, I can tell you absolutely that the market will have another downturn and it'll have corrections, which are 10 percent. It'll have bear markets, which are around 20 percent. It'll probably have a collapse at some point, and it's just 30, 40, 50%. But I have no idea when that's gonna happen. And people who say they know, are they don't know. And what you need to understand, by the way, is that any given moment, there are so many people making so many predictions that whatever happens, somebody will have predicted it. It doesn't mean they have predictive powers, it just means that they happen to be the one that predicted what happened. So I put it this way, Imagine that the lottery is up to some enormous amount of money and you read that somebody got the winning numbers and walked away with tens of millions of dollars. Your reaction is not to that, oh, so-and-so who won the lottery, they must have figured out how to predict winning lottery numbers. No, you recognize on the face of it that that's somebody who got extraordinarily lucky and nobody turns to them and says, what are the next winning lottery numbers going to be? Because we know it was luck. It's the same thing with people predicting what the market's going to do. When the market does something dramatic, you can be guaranteed that there will be somebody who correctly predicted they were going to do it, just like somebody gets winning lottery numbers. Doesn't mean that they have predictive powers. It means they got lucky. And it's important to understand because it doesn't mean that they can tell you what's going to happen next, which is what would be valuable. But nobody can do that.
3: I want to end this interview by going back to your first blog post. If I have it correctly, your first blog post was a story about the monk and the minister. So if I can retell it, probably not as artfully as you did. There were once two boys who grew up together and were friends, and they went their separate ways. And one became a minister surrounded by riches and well-off, and the other became a monk who lived very frugally and had very basic clothes and things. And the two met up as adults, and the minister looks at the monk and says, "'If you could learn to cater to the king, you wouldn't have to live on rice and beans.'" And then the monk turns back to the minister. And what does he say, JL?
4: He says, minister, if you could learn to live on rice and beans, you wouldn't have to cater to the king.
3: So I I know back in 2011, you identified very clearly with the monk. And I'm looking at life today for you as an outsider looking in coming up to 2020. And you are a man in the last 10 years who's written a blog who's written a book, who's gotten involved in endeavors like Chautauqua. We're sitting here at Cabanda. You just bought a new car, which you've named Steve, Steve 2. And you've spent, what, the last six months traveling the world and Europe. You just came back. You're going to be going out on the road again. So I would repeat that kind of question. Who do you most identify with Coming up to 2020, the monk, the minister, or the king?
4: Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Again, one I've never been asked. So I think that in terms of the trappings that I have in my life, even in those days when I back when I wrote that post, I am probably more along the lines of being a minister because when you live like a monk and you save 50% of your income and you invest it over the decades, you're going to, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're going to wind up rich. I've never, i am always been naturally frugal. It just comes naturally to me. And it's been very useful and functional because being frugal is what freed up the capital to invest. But of course, there's a certain irony that as as you practice this over the decades, you become wealthier and wealthier and have less and less of a need of, of being frugal. So yeah I mean i but I've never been been frugal just for the sake of being frugal um, you know my attitude has always been if you save fifty percent of your income, you're fine, and when I made ten thousand dollars a year, I lived on five. When I made a hundred thousand dollars a year, I lived on fifty. I didn't say, Well, I'm only going to continue to live on five, and I guess I think of it the same way. It's actually still hard for for us to spend money. You mentioned I bought a new car, which we did. Candidly, we could have bought a much more expensive car. Uh, I have a beach house. We could have bought a much more expensive beach house. I say that only to illustrate that it's hard for us to spend money because it does go against our natural tendencies. But on the other hand, at this point in my life, I have more money than time, and I'm trying to make that more of a part of my decision making process. Uh, and at the same time though, it was buying the new car for instance, and I've written about this was hard because we really liked the old car and there is something about having an old car. That's just enormously appealing to me, but functionally and giving the amount of travel we do and what have you, a new car made more logical sense, but it wasn't the most comfortable emotional decision to make actually.
3: I think in our lives, maybe at different points, we get to be all of them. Sometimes we're the monk, especially at the beginning of our journey when we don't have much. Sometimes we're the minister when we have things we want, when we ignore this idea of opportunity costs, when we indulge ourselves because that brings us joy. And sometimes we're the kings because we get to a place where we've saved enough And now we can live, and we can do it comfortably, and we can do it within our means, and we make choices, but they're rational, smart choices. Where can people find you, and what's up next in your life?
4: Well, the blog is probably the best way to find me, and that's jlcollinsnh.com. I don't know what's next in my life, actually. It's, you know, life is pretty good the way it is. We're mostly nomadic. We spend some of our time at Cabanda, which we enjoy. We're hoping to spend next summer here. That's the plan. We'll do Chautauquas again in Croatia next year. And uh, I don't write on the blog very much, but every now and again, I when something uh, is interesting enough to me, like having bought this new car, I'll put up some posts. So mostly I'm just kind of, Kicking back and watching the waves roll in.
1: Hey, trivia fans. I'm your pal, Joe's Bomb's neighbor, Doug. And since we're back in Texas, the land of snakes and lizards, I think it's my civic duty to share that today is Reptile Awareness Day. I'm trying to come up with some slogans to celebrate the day to share with Gertrude so she can post stuff on Twitter. Uh, uh, slither your way to success? Don't worry about your reptile dysfunction. That's my favorite. In just a moment, I'll share some of my favorite reptiles. But first, how's today's trivia? The T-Rex is one of the biggest and baddest reptiles this world has ever seen. And it just so happens that to be super valuable today in the form of fossils. The T-Rex fossil, Stan, was just auctioned off for a record amount earlier this month in New York. Wow, I didn't know there were t-rexes in new york anyway the question is how much did stan go for since this one isn't so cut and dry i'll make it a little bit easier for you make it multiple choice was it 14.4 million 23.7 million 31.8 million or 39.4 million i'll be back with your answer faster than you can roar and stomp around like joe's mom
0: over the last few months, I've proven that if you're in a small business, you need to be able to work from anywhere. Tying a phone line for your business to a set place can be problematic, especially you'll see not just for me, but just in the time of COVID, you might be working from home. You might be working from a park. You could be working from anywhere. Business owners and workers are always on the go. And that means using your cell phone for business purposes, maybe using your computer Maybe using your landline if you have one. Phone.com provides you with business phone numbers. You can connect to any advice. So you'll get voice, text, call management, many additional features with phone.com. You can also add, by the way, video meetings and video conferencing. No more regular hassle in setting up video calls. And phone.com voice and video solutions are certified HIPAA compliant. Remember the, I, I won't say the other the name of the other provider, OG, but remember that provider, early this year who said oh um private may not mean what you think it means when it comes to our service true (laughs) that was that was a surprise for many people phone.com is hipaa compliant meaning when they say that it's private if you're working in private matters like a therapist or a doctor it is hipaa compliant Visit phone.com and check out how easy it is. No difficult hardware to install. You just pick a monthly plan and a new number, or you can already use the number that you have now. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a company of one, or a team of 20, phone.com's for you, and as your business grows, they grow with you. 24-7 customer support with live humans, greetings, automated attendance, and hold music you can have. Call forwarding, screening, incoming caller ID. It's all there. Go online at phone.com and you can be making calls in minutes. That's P-H-O-N-E dot com. Or you can call them at 877-PHONE-10. And for stackers, use promo code stacker to receive 20% off your first three months. Again, that's phone.com or call 877-PHONE-10. Promo code stacker. Check them out at phone.com and see how they can help you. You and I both know that the way we work together seemingly changed overnight. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's having access to the right resource. That's essential for adapting your business. 2020 has been a year of uncertainty. So how can your business plan for the unexpected? There's so much, so much happening right now. Finding the right talent can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Well, Fiverr's online marketplace connects businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. We've used Fiverr here at Stacking Benjamins for a ton of voice talent. We've used them for graphic design. We've also used them for copy editing. We've used Fiverr a ton, and it's always, for us, been just a fantastic experience. Not only can I sort by reviews, by the service, by the deadline, by the price, Fiverr makes it really easy for me to put different providers up against each other and decide which one I want to go with. I don't mean that they battle it out. I mean, I get to look at each provider and then look at the next one and look at the next one until I find the right person for whatever our gig is. So whether you're launching your first business, scaling your current business, or in need of extra support to complete a project, Fiverr's global network of on-demand freelance talent is here to help find what you're looking for instantly. It's easy. Customize your search by service, deadline price, seller reviews, and more. No more guessing games. You'll know exactly what you're paying for up front. No negotiating needed. 24-7 customer service, a network of quality talent you can count on. Freelancers, of course, have worked with some of the most influential brands in the world, including Stacking Benjamins. Check out Fiverr.com and receive 10% off your first order by using our stacker code SB. Find all the digital services you need in one place, fiver Use code SB. Again, that's Fiverr.com, code SB.
1: Hey, fellow Reptile fans. It's the number one Reptile fan you know, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug. Today's trivia is about extinct reptiles, dinosaurs. Why don't people ask me anymore what my favorite reptile is? I mean, I feel like after I turn nine, nobody cares anymore. But luckily for you, I got a microphone and some time on my hands. So let's share, shall we? When I think of reptiles, there are so many options that come to mind without even getting to the extinct variety. You can... Go down to South America and pick the vicious anaconda, or you could go to India and charm a king cobra, or you could go a little further south and see the horrifying Komodo dragon. While all of those are great, there really is no contest. The best reptile ever, and it's not even close, the great white shark. Dun-dun, 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 dun-dun. I mean, just that sound alone struck fear into you sorry about that but I had to do it it doesn't get any scarier than jaws I mean unless T-rexes were still alive that is which reminds me of today's trivia the question was the T-rex fossil Stan was just auctioned off for a record amount earlier this month in New York how much did Stan go for was it 14.4 million 23.7 31.8 or 39.4 million well, no matter what the real answer is, that's one valuable reptile, but this one is even more so because he was sold for a whopping 31.8 million big ones. It's time for me to go watch some more awesome reptile videos. Dun-nuh, 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 dun-nuh. <laughs> I got you again. See ya.
0: Big thanks to Doc G for letting us play that interview. You know, what strikes me, OG, is that uh, while I will disagree with JL Collins and a lot of people have been talking about opportunity costs for a long time, I do agree with him that this is a concept that people don't understand. When you pick up, and this is Stephen Covey, right? You pick up one end of the stick, you also pick up the other end, and we never think about the other things that drop by the wayside when we go buy something or we decide not to do something.
2: It's just like procrastination. Saying that, well, I'm procrastinating. It's like, no, you're making a decision. Your decision presently is to do nothing. Right. It's the same sort of idea as that. You just have to recognize both sides of the equation and try to make a good decision based on the potential outcomes of both.
0: Hey, let's start with Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency put what you value first.
2: Today, uh, it's breakfast tacos. <laughs>
0: i already have such bad heartburn you're looking at me across the table like are you gonna make it through this thing and uh yeah i shouldn't have uh shouldn't have had the breakfast of champions this morning Ugh. but i do love me a breakfast taco it's not shabby they actually say here that uh the things you value first should be your loved ones and your time but your loved ones your time with breakfast tacos. Makes a lot of sense to me. That's why, by the way, they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple so you can spend more time doing those things that matter. Head to steckybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. Application is simple, it's online, you get an instant coverage decision, price is affordable. And even though you may not have heard of Haven Life, you've heard of this, their policies are issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual that I'm sure you've heard of more than 160-year-old insurer. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. Today, we're going to throw out the Haven Lifeline to our new friend, Ryan. Say hi, Ryan.
2: Hey, Joe and OG. My name is Ryan. First-time caller, long-time listener. My wife and I are expecting our first child in November. And with five nine plans, how can others in our family contribute to help us save for our child's education? While the grandparents will still probably buy a junior a toy or two for Christmas and his birthday, my wife and I would prefer less clutter. Is there any online portal we can direct them to so they can make one-time deposits? Or is it a matter of mom and dad collecting the money and depositing it ourselves? Thanks for the help.
0: Oh, that's a great question, Ryan. And congratulations on expanding the family. And I also think, OG, like I'm sure you do, getting started on college early, if that's the path that you think might be in the picture, starting now, great idea. Not going to hurt you.
2: Yeah. And good luck trying to get your parents and your wife's parents to not buy toys. Especially the ones that make (laughs) lots of noise and rattles. Oh, look, drums, drums. Like this thing that randomly goes off at two in the morning. And then you can't take the batteries out because you have to uh, get the screwdriver. So you got to get the screwdriver (laughs) to uh, open the battery compartment to take the batteries out.
0: We were driving once from Michigan to Ohio. My son had this Bill Elliott McDonald's NASCAR racing car. When you pushed on it, like if you just rolled it it would roll but if you Mm -hmm. push down a little bit and you rolled it would go (laughs) and cheryl put it in the bottom of a big box of presents three hours yeah three hours and we stopped to fix it twice and uh we had to pull of course we had it like all the way back so you to pull all the other stuff our suitcases Mm -hmm. we were staying there for a little while pull all that stuff out and then it went off again and then she finally was able to, because we didn't have a screwdriver, so we couldn't pull the thing out. So she thought she'd adjusted it. And then I don't know if it rocked or what, but yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So you're getting that stuff anyway. Uh, as it relates to the 529, every place is going to be a little bit different in how they handle this. I know, for example, like the you Promise plan, which is a program that you can look up online. They give you like a little code that you can direct people to, you know, a URL, just a, like a... A tiny URL or something. And then uh, I know of another company that does that. And I think the Utah plan does it too. So off the top of my head, I can think of three that basically give you a link that you can give to other people that says, here's how you can contribute to Junior's plan without getting into all the details of, you know, who do I send the check to? And how do I write the account number down? And all that other sort of nonsense, they can do it electronically. That being said, it's not the world's worst problem to collect the gift money and then send the check yourself. I mean, it's six of one, half does the other, unless it's like a really big amount. You know, if trying to, somebody, somebody's trying to put 20 grand in the 529 on your behalf, then you probably want to do it the online way. But if it's 50 or hundred or $200 for a birthday or ho- holidays or something, I, w- I wouldn't uh, really worry too much about it.
0: There are some cool programs out there that aren't 529 plan agnostic, but do help you help your children learn responsible money habits and parents, friends, grandparents can give uh, that way. Our friend Tanya Van Court has been on a couple times. We'll have Richie, our producer add a couple of those links. So you can listen Ryan to those interviews from our Friday fintech segment at dot But her company is called goal setter dot I know there's a few other companies that do this, but on one side you can help your kids set goals, do giving make gifts if they want to but also then save toward the goals and see the goals coming and and parents grandparents friends instead of giving them the toy they can also give toward goal setter so a pretty neat program i know there's a few others out there but we'll link to tanya's because that's one i know off the top of my head thanks for the question ryan congratulations again and growing the family you got a question for us guess what we'd love to help you save more money or get out of debt or make a better decision. Head to StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, whether it's your phone, your computer, if it has a microphone on it, it's a very easy call. You just press the button, start talking like Ryan did. Very simple. All right. That's going to do it for today. Big thanks to doc G again. And thanks to JL Collins. Doug's going to thank both of them as well. Thanks to you for hanging out with us today. Mom today put this review on her refrigerator. This is from Dave, an amazing mix of fun and substance, five stars. I love how Joe and the gang bring so much lightheartedness and fun while still managing to give great wisdom about finance. Don't know about any of that, Dave. I
2: like the sounds of that.
0: Don't know about any of that, but I do know we have a lot of fun and we're glad that you're here with us, Dave. So thank you very much. And lastly, if you need better financial planning help in your corner, OG and his team still taking clients this year. Head to StackyBenjamins.com forward slash OG to see how his team can interface with your team to make better money decisions. All right, I think that's it. Doug, you've got it from here, my friend. What should we have learned today?
1: So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline. We can all thank day traders for helping to drive up stock prices. Second, take a lesson from JL Collins. Whenever you make financial decisions, weigh the opportunity cost. If you do this today, what are you giving away that you could do which may be more important to your happiness? But the big takeaway? Joe just told me sharks aren't reptiles. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I knew that. I knew it. Uh, of course I knew. I totally knew it the whole time. Uh, it was just a, a, a test. It was a test. That's right. It's just a test. Plus, I mean, my favorite reptile isn't even a shark. It's, uh, it's your mom, Joe. Thanks to Doc G for sharing his conversation with J.L. Collins with us. You'll find the Earn and Invest podcast wherever you're listening to us. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter, at SBenjamin'sCast, or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you'd take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Oh sure, now you're trying to tell me your mom's not a reptile? Have you seen the skin on her elbows?
2: I listened to Bush yesterday. I had to drive somewhere. And uh, when's the last time you listened to like Smashing Pumpkins or Bush?
0: When you first said Bush, I thought you were talking about, because with the election coming up, all I was thinking about now is politicians. I'm like, I haven't, I haven't heard either. You know. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard either of in a long time. Yeah. yeah. One of them in particular. I was going to say for two different reasons, but no, but the band Bush, yeah. you know, that is not generally my kind of music, but that's some great rock and roll.
2: Yeah. My phone is connected to my car. It has a little Apple CarPlay deal. On occasion, it just randomly plays stuff out of iTunes. (laughs) Like, just you just get in and it's like, and I've got the most random stuff in iTunes. It's like, some days I get a Tony Robbins (laughs) inspirational thing. Sometimes it's air supply. I'm not sure. But this trip was Bush. And I was like, oh, yeah, man. The beginning of that song, Machine Head. Smashing Pumpkins.
0: yeah. These are three completely different sounds, though. I mean, Bush with that yeah. the screaming guitar and Gavin Rossdale's lyrics. My brother just went and saw Bush. He saw Bush and Alan Walkers now or like
2: was it get wheeled out
0: there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Gavin Rossdale. Yeah. <laughs> no, I did see, by the way, I saw Rush before okay. Neil Perth died. And I think I told you when I went and saw Rush there were dudes my dad's age sitting around me pretending they were playing air guitar and the drums. Oh yeah. And and part of it I thought was really really cool. Like I thought it was cool to watch these dudes in their 70s just getting into it, just totally getting into it. The other part thought it was kind of <laughs> kind of comical. But the right. uh, and that'll be me. And- well because their form was bad. I mean they just you could tell they hadn't done it in a while. It's That's like kind of flat. What are you doing? <laughs> Everybody knows that you Dude, don't move both fingers, dummy. Your guitar can't bend like that. How long has it been since you've done this? God, grow up. Loser. But, yeah. yeah. And by the way, rush, not my kind of music either, but that was a fantastic show.
2: A cool concert.
0: It was so good. Like the fact they were so, they were so, um, you could tell they were having fun and they were incredibly passionate about what they were doing up there. And for a band that's been on the road as much as they've been on the road, to show that much enthusiasm. I really don't think that they were lying about it. I thought that they were they were truly there having a good time with the audience. You could feel this back and forth. I got to th- the same thing by the way when I went and saw Bon Jovi, which i not I'm also not a Bon Jovi fan. But then I was still a financial planner and I took clients who love Bon Jovi, took them yeah. to Bon Jovi, set set them in really good seats and I set up, you know, two by the bar. <laughs> By the way <laughs> <laughs> well, then I, In the parking lot.
2: <laughs> you're like, I'll be, I'll see you guys at the gate. We'll get the car. We'll pull it up. I'll, I'll, I'll leave a
0: little bit early. You guys watch the whole show, sit and watch football on your phone. That actually is, is funny you say that. And I, I don't mean to derail your story, but the answer is I went to the bar. Did I tell you? So Daughtry played before, uh, Bon Jovi. So this will tell you about what year it was, right? I go to get a beer And I'm with Ameriprise and Ameriprise has a suite at the Palace of Auburn Hills where they have beer that is part of the suite thing. So I can go stand in the long line and pay 12 bucks for a beer or I can walk a little further, go to the suite and get myself a couple freebies to take back down. So I decide to go get one and I jump on my phone. And I'm talking to somebody I don't remember as I go up the stairs to the suite and, and it takes a hard left. I go up the stairs, I turn left and I slam into a glass wall like f- full on slam into it. And I remember, and, and I do remember I was actually talking to my mom then because, because I do remember my mom had called me earlier that day. I'm talking to her and I dropped the phone and my nose, you could see an imprint of my nose on the glass. Cause I hit it so damn hard and my head hurt so, 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 so bad. And then I felt this stuffy, stuffy feeling in my head and I knew exactly what it was. I held on for a second ran to the bathroom and then I went <sighs> with my nose and the blood started running just tons and tons of blood came. Everybody thinks that's an American express
2: Centurion logo. It's actually just your face imprinted on the <laughs> that glass.
0: Is, you know, those little wedgy things they have around the logo. That's just my nose, my nose, my nose, my nose, my nose. Yeah. And so I, re- I remember there was, there was another advisor there and, and he's like, you Okay. I'm like, no, I think I might have a problem, but I go to the bartender to tell them, and, and I've got this huge wad of paper towels shoved up on top of my nose. My head is pounding. And I said two things. Number one, first, I need to refill on my beer. <laughs> Second, where's first aid? Cause I think I need to have somebody look at it. Cause I'm barely certain I broke my nose. So the guy refills my beer and they actually call security. They asked me about the, the thing. They, then they went over and, and looked at it because the door was just, A, had like little blood droplets. I mean, in the time of COVID, this sounds even worse, but like blood droplets and stuff. But also you could just see the side of my face, just bam. So then I, they walk me, this person from security walks me through the bowels of this venue and uh, by the way, we passed so many sweets, like I never realized how many sweets there are. I thought Ameriprise had like one of maybe three or four sweets. nah uh, man, we must have passed ten of these things they're just making money hand over fist on this stuff. so we get to the we get to the area they have a guy who they 're putting a neck brace on, and they have for some reason they have him in like a bag, and they have the bag zipped up to like his neck and he's staring but he is but he is not in a good way and there's maybe eight people around him and i'm standing there with my beer and immediately when when the ambulance staff wheels this guy out they all turn to me and they're like okay what do you need i ran into a glass wall <laughs> And I think I might've broke my nose and they looked at it and said, you probably did break your nose, but it's straight right now. And all we would do is break it again to straighten it out. And the fact that it's straight, we, we can, we can do a bunch of stuff or you can go to, uh, if you continue to have headaches, you may have a concussion. So they told me what to look out for. And five minutes later, I went back up to the, back up to my seat and drank my beer and Actually felt okay.